Hello, hello. I am Dipanjana Pal. You are listening to the Lit Pickers, and I have with me. I'm Supriya Nair, my other Lit Picker, with whom I will be Lit Picking on literature. Because that's the kind of thing we do. That's right. Today we're going to talk about Jane Austen because Supriya is a is essentially Eleanor Dashwood. I've just discovered. We're not going to talk about Jane Austen because I'm Eleanor Dashwood. Although we can't talk about that. The primary reason we're talking about Jane Austen is because so many people are so wrong about her all the time. Okay, what are they wrong about? Where do I begin? The first idea that Jane Austen is anything less than one of the greatest literary geniuses the world has known that she's some kind of fluffy forerunner to kind of light shallow genre of romantic literature that doesn't really mean much and hasn't done much to change the world is completely false in fact jane austen is the exact opposite of all those things so jane austen is from that uh, early generation of women writers Right? Well, she's not. If we're talking about English literature, English she's, literature. Yeah, she's she comes after. She's an innovation on, you know, sort of the great Gothic women writers who wrote about girls trapped in castles, whose virtue was constantly being stolen by rakes, and so on and so forth. She which did produce f- a new kind of model. Confession: the first time I had uh, read the word rake. I thought it was something that is used to clean gardens and I did not understand why this is such a threat to a woman's virtue. I think cuz they're tall and thin, also because they can hit you bang on your face if you step on it wrong. Very But hurtful. Anyway, moving swiftly on. So Jane Austen today we know as basically the godmother of the rom-com as we know it. Like there is no possibility that the rom-com as a genre would have developed had it not been for Jane Austen's novels. Right, because girls would keep having sex and then dying because that's what novels were about. Before. If they even got till the sex part, basically right. they just kept dying. Yeah, they were and always cheated into it. And here was a woman who wrote about heroines and gave them happy endings. Women who took charge in many ways of their lives. Except what's worth keeping in mind is that immediately after and actually for a few generations after not everyone loved jane austen and definitely not with the passion that you do i mean for example virginia wolf turned around and said that she had too little of the rebel in her um then elizabeth barrett browning had some fabulously snarky lines about how she's essentially you know bland charlotte bronte hated her and i think it was because all of them took the books at face value i mean you know i'm sure there were tons of physicists after albert einstein who thought i can do better uh and i'm like you know you like you tried i mean no disrespect i love you virginia wolf you changed my life but like have some respect yes the reason for that of course is like i was saying i think people have taken the books at face value which is that woman needs to find a man and preferably a husband without that she's useless that's what the ostensible like the most obvious narrative is but you really within moments of actually sort of following these characters you realize that Austen is saying exactly the opposite that it's not the marriage that is going to make this woman by a long shot and in a huge way it's actually a love story between a woman and property rather than a woman and a man mm-hmm. and i think that's actually what's made it interesting for us even now because if there's one thing that we still as women are constantly thinking about it is how are we going to be independent you know like if you need to pay rent if you need to make your own life and do the things that you want to do there's a certain amount of finance that you require that is really the basic question that 
guides all of Jane Austen's six books, which is another thing to keep in mind. This is a woman who died by the age of 41. She has written only six books, and yet she spawned a genre. I mean, there is no male author equivalent, like, you know, all these literary male greats that we talk about. I don't think you can find one that compares to just this basic fact of 41 years, six novels, each of them changes how women in literature are seen and written. Yeah, I have a larger theory that the novel is a women's genre and any significant innovation, which, by the way, includes the innovations made by the Brontes and Virginia Woolf you know, came from women first before it was rendered respectable or award-winning or worthy in some way by male writers who really just made incremental developments to something a woman had already innovated on. This is something we still see, by the way, some of the earliest forerunners of science fiction, the romance novel, you know, all sort of the most popular genres of uh, of the novel all have women as their as their forerunners and forebears. Mm. Uh, and Austen was no different. She not only invented a whole modern genre, as Dipanjana said, she kind of reinvented the novel itself. Her great innovations, you know, to just take a sort of side angle from the women and property idea, which I completely agree with, is that she also expected men to be decent human beings. I know, what a great idea, no? <laughs> right, which is something people still have a lot of trouble grappling with today. Particularly men! Sorry. <laughs> yeah, this is why I think so many... I don't know if you've known men who read Pride and Prejudice and then say, oh, what's like the big deal about this? You know, it's just about this girl getting married to like a stuck-up guy. I mean, you, you missed the point, brother. And not just on Jane Austen. Um, But no, here's the thing. I am sympathetic to the idea that Jane Austen doesn't always feel accessible. Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because I think that the language and the setting, like, you know, she spends a lot of time writing about the houses. She spends a lot of time uh, talking about everyday banalities. And they can seem like, I, it's not relevant to my life. I live in the 21st century and I have Snapchat. Um, <laughs> it's a theme in my life right now. Is there a Jane Austen Snapchat filter? Oh, sadly, no. Well, there should be. But you know why, right? Why? Because I keep getting the Indian face filters. So I just, for whatever reason, Snapchat only wants to see me decked up like the Indian heroine in Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> well, when, yeah. as I have mentioned... I am basically an aunt. I am a dowager aunt. Give me my little cap and grey curls and it would be fine. But coming back to the point. Well, there is an argument we've made that Jane Austen is Indian, that she's Chinese, that she's Pakistani, that she's Asian in short, in a way that she just isn't uh, English anymore. So a few years ago, there was a book that came out called Austenistan. Hmm. And it was... uh, It was a collection of short stories written by the Pakistani Jane Austen Society. Because there is a Jane Austen society in Pakistan that is active. Is there one in India? I couldn't find one. Yeah, I haven't found one either. So, Austenistan Hmm. was a volume of short stories written by women who formed the Pakistani Jane Austen fan club, as it were. Most of the stories were, "Mm," but by which I mean not very good. Oops. Uh, But the ones that were good were great fun. But what you got to see also because of that book is... How relevant that whole question of women needing independence, how they can get it in these social circumstances where, you know, everyone and their aunt is out to tell them what to do, how they have to behave, what they have to wear, what they should eat, how they should approach the man. Mm -hmm. And also what was interesting to me was 
the best part about Jane Austen's romantic side in the books is that she gives you a really neatly delineated hero, mm. right? Not in terms of what he looks like, but in terms of his behavior, right? That was what was missing in these books. It's like we don't know who this hero is. Mm. The qualities that will make this guy heroic. We don't have that. Right. I think there's a tendency among Austin fans, uh, as much as her detractors, to kind of focus entirely on what this comedy of manners means for the heroine and her female cohort, and not necessarily as a wider comment on the society that Austin was writing about, but all the novels are in fact very much about that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people feel that Austin works in Asia because our societies are gender segregated the way uh, hers were, but um, that's not necessarily true at all. I also think uh, just in the interest of making Jane Austen more, um, you know, suitable to Asia, men should A, invest in white shirts that they can wear wet. <laughs> well, they kind of do tend to sweat a lot. Around not the parts. same thing. Unfortunately, true. Also, please be fit under the white shirt because otherwise just, no. Anyway, um, there was recently a book written set in very, very posh Delhi, mm. which is absolutely, you know, very elegant hat tip to Jane Austen. It doesn't contain many white starch shirts or unstarched ones, but there's plenty of sweat free-flowing uh, off-screen. We're talking about Mahesh Rao's Polite Society, which both the Panchana and I read and enjoyed quite a bit. Yeah, I generally like Mahesh's writing. Mm. Mahesh is also very active on Instagram and I do think some of his finest short stories are his Insta stories, <laughs> particularly the ones starting, starring his father. Right. But um, He's M. Rousing on Instagram if yeah. you don't already follow him. He's lovely. Uh, but the book, so it's Emma set in Delhi and he's very faithful to the structure of the book and... Uh, structure of Jane Austen's book and also extremely observant about Delhi and I know at least three people who have read the book and wondered if they're one of the characters in it because they feel you know he's got the shallowness and the whole frou-frou-ness of Delhi society Delhi high society really really well and they're just like oh it me yeah basically <laughs> yeah. Um, but again for me one of the weak points of the book was that I didn't think the heroes were particularly well-developed. I don't think Emma has great male characters. I mean, I don't think it has Austen's greatest male characters, does it? Uh, no, I don't think so. But then this is a new book. Uh, that's it true. It doesn't need to be contained by the same limitations. Uh, fair enough. It's not a pastiche. One of the things about polite society is that it inverts the thing, the tension that makes Emma great. Uh, Emma is full of these characters who are situationally unpleasant, who end up having a perfect plot and a perfect happy ending. It's one of Austen's sunniest books. And Mahesh's book is actually very dark because it takes the inherent unpleasantness of these really privileged characters who believe that they can turn the world inside out to suit themselves and takes that to its logical conclusions, which none of which are very pretty. And also he lays bare just how exploitative and uh, constricting society is even for this incredibly elite and privileged bunch. Mm -hmm. So when women, particularly women, in that section of society, even there, they don't have the freedom of movement, they don't have the freedom of expression, they don't have the liberty to go out and say what they think, do what they want to do. 
Um, they're vulnerable to powerful men. They're extremely vulnerable to powerful men. They're kept under the thumbs of some of them. And when there's a section in the book which is set in a writing retreat and includes an interaction with an with a senior author. Right. We should pause here and tell you that uh, Mahesh's heroine is nominally an author herself. Indeed. She's been writing a novel, we are told. The effigies of my enigmas. Uh, Mahesh is really good at these, like, really funny, piercing nothings, you know. The one-liners can be pretty devastating. Yeah, it's very funny in that sense. But when you start looking at what does writing a novel mean, you know, you're trying to put structure into your story. You're trying to tell your story. And it broke my heart And I know that it shouldn't. This is obviously because I'm the black hole of fun. This is a, you know, it's a funny book in many ways. Mm. But the whole idea that the heroine is someone who is trying to tell her story and just can't tell it, you know, she can't tell it because she can't find the words. Mm. And this is a hyper articulate person who has no problem putting words into other people's mouths, into her own mouth where it needs to be, you know, cut down someone to size, uh, order something, you know. She doesn't seem like somebody who should not be able to take hold of her narrative. And yet she's completely floundering. Mm. And there is not one figure in her life who helps her find a voice. I mean, there are people who want to be allies in it. It's not that they're not, there's nobody wanting to support her. They are there. It doesn't help. And that, I think, is why the novel is called Polite Society, because it's very much about the limits of that kind of politeness. Yeah. Well, I really like the novel. It isn't often that a Jane Austen adaptation can live up to sort of this mighty, really intimidating uh, tag of, you know, an Austen adaptation. Mm. But it does, and it does that by subverting subverting yeah, Austin, I, I, Austinian expectations. Is there anything else good that we've uh, that we've read or seen that kind of takes off from, from Austin? She is only, you know, like I said, the forebear of the modern novel. Everybody. Yeah, just um, reminding just reminding everybody. No, that. I mean from older stuff, there's obviously stuff like Bridget Jones's diary. Bridget Jones's diary is yeah. basically an updated yeah. Austin novel. I don't think it's aged very well. Do you? Not in the slightest. And that's another point at which, you know, you start appreciating Austin mm. because while we are not all, you know, desperate to get married so that we can be assured of a roof over our heads. And a shag. Uh, not all of us at any rate. <laughs> um, but but she doesn't feel dated in the same way that Bridget Jones's diary today feels dated. Like yeah. the kind of things that she lets Daniel get away with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm That's just, right. I mean, just because he's Hugh Grant. Um, yeah. Isn't it funny that Hugh Grant actually played like the most buttoned up of uh, Austen's heroes in Sense yeah. and Sensibility? So he played uh, Edward Ferrers, who ends up with Eleanor Dashwood eventually. Sorry for the spoilers, guys, but like the book is 200 years old. <laughs> if you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but th- this is the Angley Sense and Sensibility, right? Yeah. Um, and that's the great stories about how when Angley was directing this, he was really not fluent with English. <laughs> okay. So he would get them to do the whole scenes and then he would be like, more. <laughs> and the whole cast is like, more of what? <laughs> He's just like, yeah. Well, oh. he, ended up ma- yeah, he ended up making a pretty good movie. Because he's Asian, and like I said, Jane Austen is Asian. So the book that um, Mahesh wrote, Polite Society, was sold in many ways in India as the Indian Crazy Rich Asians. Oh. Which is a huge disservice to the book. (laughs) Um, 
because crazy there's nothing wrong with crazy rich Asians aside from the fact that it's just a bad book right which polite society isn't but it does have crazy rich Asians so in that sense i suppose they're accurate yeah um i mean austin's characters can be crazy but rich is a bit of a stretch not in polite society though polite That's society true. they are obscenely rich yeah and about to fall into ruin as we realize by the end of it but yeah they are stupidly rich at that point mm. but um i think the same thing that makes austin a little tiresome to read in the modern era so pray of course is I'm rolling cut, her I'm, eyes i'm i'm cutting out of this podcast what do you <laughs> even mean you mean people who have wrong opinions about austin i find her boring at times it's true uh we may never be friends again um this is this is breaking down <laughs> what no but okay but now i'm curious what do you find like what what are the parts about austin that you find boring i find the whole description of the places the banalities of conversations not always the most exciting uh there are certain books in which it works really well and there are certain parts of books where it doesn't work as well for me but i do think that it's the perfect setting for movies because they give you everything that you need to know about setting because the thing is that when you're not you know approaching the book with a millennial sense of attention as i am when i'm getting bored with the uh, settings and directions i'm clutching my pearls Yeah, you it's can't true. see. <laughs> Just, Go on. It's, sorry, it's, sorry. It's harsh. Go. I'm I'm here to break her heart. Um <laughs> the point is that the details of settings are to give you a sense of the social circumstances in which all of this is playing mm-hmm. out. So why are so many Jane Austen movie adaptations so bad in that case? Because you're right, I do actually think she's uniquely adaptable. Many people have tried because uh, it becomes too faithful. And a lot faithful. of people have have failed. It becomes too faithful to the text hmm. and the text is literary at the end of the day that's quite you know, right it, yeah. it does have to be adapted that's right and i do think that sort of early bbc adaptations which were woodenly faithful they ruined a lot of shakespeare this way as well you know uh, like i don't know what you're talking about the whole idea of laurence olivier holding up a plastic skull has informed my childhood <laughs> for a long time i thought that the only way you could adapt shakespeare to screen was if every actor hmm. sort of looked away from the character that they were talking to <laughs> looked into the camera because that was like looking you know uh, at your audience on a 19th century stage and declaiming to you like they've ruined helen a lot of helen mirren's performances like that which is kind of amazing thank you bbc sorry but to come back to but they did to, that to austen as they've well they've done that to austen as well i'm not a huge fan of the colin firth jennifer earl pride and prejudice even though it gave us the famous i mean it gave us the model for what jane austen's men should wear but that's only because white shirts yeah and that's only because colin firth was delicious and will always be delicious mm. um that's got nothing to do with the adaptation <laughs> I have to say I think Emma has been particularly unlucky because it's it is a tricky book to adapt because it's so relentlessly sunny. You really have to kind of dig deep to to get to its meanness and its nice white ladiness. Um one of the things that I think succeeded have you seen this was uh, Romola Gary's Emma yes. a mini series in which the guy who plays Sherlock in elementary mm. Johnny something or other plays Mr Knightley. I thought that was very good. It was very well done. Ultimately whether an adaptation is good or bad for Jane Austen is going to boil down to how the heroines particularly there'll be two women in practically every Jane Austen book mm. and its adaptation how well are those women depicted mm. and invariably that is where a certain amount of the adaptation has to come in because there's a sense of feistiness in most of her heroines but they are 
articulated in different ways. Like, for example, there was something quite interesting that uh, a stand-up comic, a woman stand-up comic from Britain, whose name I'm now forgetting, Britain. pointed out that Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, who is obviously Pride and Prejudice is kind of her most famous book now. Mm. Elizabeth Bennet was not supposed to be the obviously charming, beautiful heroine that we have inherited. No. It doesn't make sense what Darcy, you know... Um, no, but that was Jane Bennett, who is me, by the way, because I'm so good and beautiful. That's not the part I'm doubting. I'm just trying to see the resemblance between you and the utterly mute Jane Bennett. I can be, I can be silent. No, really. But don't be. Don't even aspire to these things, I would say. But the point is that Elizabeth is rude. Elizabeth is mm. kind of, you know, violating conventions of what is feminine, yeah. uh, which is why everyone goes against her in many ways, mm. right? And you will love her in spite of that. Now, we've changed that around to make it seem like, you know, that she's this uh, almost like a paragon of feminist virtue. Mm. So, And she looks like Karen Knightley. <laughs> But we made her the heroine, right? Like, we've made her the obvious heroine. Whereas in the book, it's actually a little less predictable that way. Because you see this character who is difficult to like, whom the hero does not like, mm -hmm. and then comes round to against all of society, as it were. That, at a very basic romantic level... That's what makes it work. And I feel like we haven't actually seen that with that many adaptations. So yeah. that's why this comics point kind of struck me, because we've turned Elizabeth into the ideal woman. And she wasn't supposed to be ideal. The point was that you're going to love her despite her not being ideal. Yeah. So rank your Austin novels. One to six or six to one. That's Why don't maybe. you start while I slyly pull out my little notebook to see what she wrote? To see <laughs> to see which novels actually constitute the one to six. Okay. My favorite Austen novel is Persuasion because it's the novel in which the heroine runs away to see. My second is Mansfield Park oh. uh, because it's, I think it's Austen's big mood. Uh, a lot of the, the novels are really about a simmering tension and anger. Uh, that women feel about the world that they've been dropped into. And Mansfield Park is the angriest. It's also her bitterest. Uh, and that seems to me to be a good good flavor. Pride and Prejudice, for obvious reasons, it is hilarious. Emma, which, like I've said before, is the perfect novel, except that it still vaguely embarrasses me because I see so much of myself in its more unlikable characters that I'm still grappling with how to deal with it, which is why it comes so low hmm. on the list. Uh, Northanger Abbey, really funny, very spiky. It's just, you know, slighter than all the other books. Um, and the last one is Sense and Sensibility, which was the book she published first, first, which I think is like kind of her least perfect. Which was the first one you read? Pride and Prejudice. In life? In life. Hmm. Like a lot of people, I, I assume. Yeah, no, I, I read Northanger Abbey first. And, um, and right. I, I couldn't, I mean, I remember reading this and thinking, really? In the 1800s? <laughs> you couldn't be kidding me. Yeah. What's um, your ranking? I think for me, it's uh, Emma right up on top. Mm, perfect. Uh, I love Pride and Prejudice, actually, for the range of women characters that it has in it and for Darcy. But truly, because you get a different kind of woman with literally every person in there. Yeah. And that's not just the Bennett sisters who are all oh, obviously yeah, yeah. etched. There's Mrs. Collins and the de Burgs. Uh, and, and it's such a complex 
for all its froofy fun and uh, lighthearted appeal, it's such a complex look at what marriage means for a woman. Mm. That it's not just about getting the guy. Like without that marriage, when you say no to a proposal that will set not just you up, but actually make it easier for your family to survive, what it takes for a woman to say no to that, it's remarkable. Right. Um, and I think it's something that in different ways remains kind of true today because, mm. you know, we attach a lot of importance to being picked by a guy. I did rabbit ears to point out the word picked because obviously that's kind of judgmental. So anyway, so Emma, Pride and Prejudice. After that, the rest of them, I just said, they're all three. <laughs> Well, that seems fair. Yeah. Uh, it looks like that might be all we have time for. Thank you, Jane Austen, for making it possible for 200 years for women to write things that, they're, that are on their minds and for 200 years of men just not getting the point. Thank you very much for listening to us. This has been The Lip Pickers. If you'd like to find the Banjana and I to argue about Austen or anything else or to suggest books we should read or talk about, please come find us on Twitter. I'm at Supriya N and the Panjana is at D-P-A-N-J-A-N-A. Bye for now. This is a Made in India production. The editorial producers are May Thomas and Sean Phantom. Shania Subramanian is our producer and the assistant producer is Janam Devan. These episodes are edited by Vijay Doifade and recorded by Adriel George, as well as the Island City Studio. Our theme music is Here's to You by the Easy Wanderlings. <laughs>